Our study this morning is again in the book of Joshua, so if you would turn to one of my favorite texts, Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3, thank you for bringing your Bibles. Always bring your Bible, always bring a pen so you can take notes on what the Spirit is impressing upon your heart and what the Spirit is doing to increase your faith, because that's what the Bible does, right? Faith comes by hearing, tell me the rest of the phrase, hearing by the, by the Word of God. So every time we study the Word of God together, and I hope you don't see this as, as me preaching, that's not the goal. The goal is for us to study together. And any time we study the Word of God, our faith is going to be built the most, because faith comes by the Word of God. So we can't overestimate the importance of, of study, and we need um, stronger, deeper, more mature faith in our life every day, right? How many need stronger, deeper, more mature faith in their life every single day? I know I do. So bring your Bible every time you come here. If you don't have one, if you're visiting and you're a guest this morning, you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. In fact, if you want to raise your hand right now, I'll make sure somebody gets you a Bible, okay? So if you don't have a Bible, don't ever be without one. We'll give you one, okay? Joshua chapter 3. We're in week 3 of our kind of quick overview of the book of Joshua. We're talking about taking new ground, which applies to our faith. It applies to victory over sin and immaturity. And it also applies, as we've seen in a broader context, in our emphasis on, on outreach and taking back some of the ground we've lost spiritually in our country. Our, our goal is always the Great Commission, right? That's what Jesus told us to do. Go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. And, and that's an awesome and wonderful responsibility that we have as believers. So we're seeing that in the context of this book. You remember in chapter 1, a couple weeks ago, the Lord called the Israelites, and by extension us, to be strong and to be courageous um, and, to, and to trust Him and obey His call to move forward and take new ground. And last week in chapter 2, uh, we were called to be confident because we saw that the Lord has already secured victory, right? So our goal last week and our assignment last week as we left was to pray for people's hearts that don't know Jesus Christ yet, to pray for their hearts to melt with conviction and to be active in the work of praying and talking to people about Christ. Now we get to chapter 3 this morning and Israel is about to take their first steps into the promised land. But before they do, God establishes three very important prerequisites for them uh, to prepare to go into the land, okay? So let's start. We're going to read verses 1 to 14 and then, or 1 to 13, and then we'll read a couple verses um, at the end of our study. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. The end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the, which you, the way which you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua says to the people, verse 5, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. 
And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I'll begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It will come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, that they rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. Now the Lord has given his approval. He's given his charge. Rahab in chapter 2 has confirmed that not only is victory assured, but that their enemies, the people, all those nations that we just quoted, uh, that they've already lost hope, that they, they don't have any confidence that they're going to be able to withstand Israel or God. So it would seem logical, after 40 years of wandering and wandering and wandering and wandering, that God would say, let's get to it. Let's go ahead and just cross over and get in the land and, and, and we'll just make this happen. But I want you to notice that's not what happens. Now the problem is Israel didn't have a legacy of faith and consistency. And both of those are vital to walking with the Lord. And the way God's going to lead us in and the way God's going to lead us through every step in a new land is with total trust and outright obedience. So he's not just going to say, all right, we got here finally, go ahead in. There, there are still some things that have to be refined in Israel. And there's really no difference between what they needed and what we need, both in our daily walk and in our ministry to take new ground. So the name of this message is That First Step. Because for Israel, we see that it was the step into the water of the Jordan, the step of faith now to, to go ahead and possess the land. For us, it's going to be that step of marching into our community with, with a fresh approach to try to reach people for Christ. So before they go into the promised land, and before we begin this renewed outreach, the Lord says that there's a critically essential action that has to come first. And you see it in verse 5, where Israel's told, and we're told, to consecrate ourselves. Now this is the first spiritual principle in our study today. That there is a first step before that first step. Consecration is a, a beautiful biblical concept. It means to be holy, be prepared, to sanctify, to be separate, and to dedicate ourselves. Okay, let me read that again. To be holy, to be prepared, to sanctify, to be separate, and to dedicate ourselves. Now, that word, consecrate, should be a natural outgrowth of our relationship with the Lord. And every single person who knows the Lord and loves the Lord is called to do it. 
And let's be abundantly clear, this call to consecration in verse 5 is not just limited to this special event. He doesn't just say in Joshua 3, all right, guys, really important time, and we're going in this land, and this is going to be big, and we've, we've been preparing this for, for years and years and years. So for this time, let's make sure we're really light. Let, let's consecrate ourselves uh, just for this time. Consecration is an every moment, every day thing. It is foundational to everything else. Now, God had been telling Israel that throughout the years, but they just hadn't paid attention, or maybe they just didn't care. The priests had embodied this because their calling as priests was to be to set apart for holiness in contrast to the people who were rebellious, we've seen throughout the years, and, and inconsistent. So the priests were supposed to set the example to remind the people that God had set Israel apart from himself. And he even says to them in Leviticus 20, if you obey me fully, I will make you a treasured possession and I will make you a kingdom of priests. In other words, listen now, God isn't just saying to the priests, he's not just saying to the pastors and the elders and the missionaries and the teachers, he's not just saying you guys are priests, so you have to lead the way and consecrate yourselves, but everybody else, it's not as important. He says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. This should be a church of priests. Now, not the word priest as you think Catholic faith. The, the word priest being that we all are representatives of Christ and stand for Christ and are leaders for Christ. So every one of us, this should be a church of priests. And as a church of priests, the calling is to consecrate ourselves. God reinforced this principle even in how he set up the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was the place of God's presence. Part of the reason we named this church a tabernacle is we want it to be a place of God's presence, where God's presence is manifest, where when you walk in, this is my prayer right now, where when we walk in, we say, the Lord's here. Not, oh, those people are here and they're really nice and, and not that pastor and not those leaders and not those... No, none of that. We are, we are not in view. The worship team does not want to be seen. That's not the goal. The goal is that when you walk in, you say, the Lord is here. The presence of the Lord is here. And it's, and it's actually overwhelming. Like you're just like, whoa, wait a second. I can't be focused on anything else right now because the Lord's here. I, I pray that that will be true of us. So when God set up the tabernacle, he put it right in the center of the camp. Three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here. They all camped around the tabernacle. And he says, the closer you get to the tabernacle, the closer you get to the holy of holies, the more separation there has to be from sin. And the opposite was true. The more serious the person was unclean, the farther they had to get away from God's presence and the more they had to do to regain access to his presence. So the first step, look at it, verse 5. The first step before that first step into the land was to consecrate themselves, to make a conscious and lasting decision to sanctify their lives so they would be prepared to be utilized by the Lord. 
You know, we love Jesus, don't we? We love what, what he did to save us from our sin and to forgive us and to cleanse us and to adopt us. And every day, I don't know about you, but every day I hope we're living in the joy of God's grace. But if we're so willing to receive his salvation, then we also need to be so willing to be set apart and consecrated. Because God didn't save us to say, all right, Rhodes, you're saved, you're forgiven, I exonerate you, all your sin is gone, you're cleansed forever, it's all by my grace. But now, until you come to heaven, or until I come back, you can live however you want. Because you're forgiven, right? I don't remember your sins anymore as far as the east and the west. There's no record. I mean, that's all scripture. So, so you're clean, you're forgiven, but, but you know what? Do whatever you want now. Do whatever you want. In fact, Paul even asked in Romans 6, now that, now that I'm cleansed, shouldn't I keep sinning so grace can keep abounding? And he says, nope, that's the wrong way of thinking. As those that are forgiven, as those that are saved, we're now set apart from God, uh, by God. He, he puts us over near, says, you're mine. Now our lifestyle has to match that. And that means we have to completely put ourselves in the hands of the Lord so he can express his holiness through us. It is a purposeful daily decision. Watchman Nee, oh, I hope you read Watchman Nee someday. He was an amazing Christian teacher and author in China in the early 20th century, and he described it like this. Look at the quote. Now it's no longer a question of being able or not being able. It's a question of being willing or not being willing to put ourselves in his hand. Formerly, it was a question of inability. Now it's a question of unwillingness. You see, the question now before us is, am I standing perpetually on the shore looking at the water? Or am I standing on the shore looking back at Egypt? Boy, I missed that former life. That was so awesome. I miss being able to do what I used to do before, and I want to go back. And because of that, because I'm looking backward or because I'm looking at the water, it's a huge obstacle. How in the world are we going to get through that? Now, I'm not going to take that step of faith. I'm not going to take that step of obedience. I'm just going to kind of stand here. Listen, we can't expect to hear from the Lord if we're not consecrated. We can't expect to be blessed by the Lord if we're not doing his will. So we need to take those first steps of, of, of surrender and sacrifice and holiness and trust in the Lord so he can start to lead us and build our confidence. And what does that mean? Practically, men, it means you're called to be the priest of your family. That's not an easy role. But it is our role. And we can dance around it. We can say, oh, I don't want to be the priest of my family. I'm not ready to do that, Paul. Well, then you better get ready because it's your job. So men, listen now, we need to be holy. We need it to be an example of being set apart from the world. And we need to be sanctified to and sanctifying our wives and our children. And we need to raise our children to know and trust and love the Lord. Ladies your turn. It's your calling to teach and to train spiritually and to do so with increasingly strong faith, trusting in the Lord's strength and trusting in the Lord's help. In our families, 
it means that we are supposed to take that step of being an example of faith, teaching our children that above all, we trust the Lord, no matter what the circumstances, we're depending on the Lord, no matter what the crisis, we're calling on the Lord, because we stand for the Lord. As believers, we're supposed to trust the provision of the Lord financially. We're supposed to rely on Him for power and, and for effectiveness as we do the work of ministry. As, as individuals, we're supposed to take our hands off of something or anything that stands as a hindrance and, and, and a block to trusting in the Lord. Anything that impedes our spiritual maturity needs to be put off. And that especially means uh, the sin that so easily besets us. Because we're called right here to consecrate, and consecrate means holiness. Not as a moment, not just when we're in church, but as a lifestyle. Holiness is not part-time. It's not based on the circumstances. It's a direct reflection of our relationship with the Lord. So, they go and scope out the land, chapter 2. That makes tactical sense. They go talk to Rahab. That's logical. She has a good feel. What's going on? Going into Jericho was important. But, but listen, all of that was worthless unless they did chapter 3, verse 5. And look at what the Lord says, and we'll come back to this at the end. Look at what the Lord says to them. He says, when you do this, when you consecrate yourselves, I will do wonders among you. You know, maybe the reason the church of Jesus Christ is so powerless right now in our country, and maybe the reason we don't see more wonders, and I'm not talking weird junk that's not, it's an aberration from the Word of God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's hand moving and doing things we can't explain and changing hearts and changing lives and changing the effectiveness of ministry. Maybe the reason we're not seeing that is because there's not enough whole life consecration. Don't you want to see what the Lord could do if we really gave our lives to him? It would be remarkable. We would stand back and go, really? That's what God wants to do? And he says, yes, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting. So, first step, consecration. Second step, look at it. To take that first step requires evidence of God's clear leading. Now, multiple verses here. Verses 3 and 4, verse 6, verse 8, verses 12 and 13. Lord is very specific in his instruction about what they are supposed to do to cross and take new ground. And he says, I want you to do it the way I'm describing. In other words, two million of you standing on the bank, ready to go, water's there. I don't you want you to just rush into the water willy-nilly, just going, let's go, let's get, let's get everybody across. I mean, you can just imagine the mob mentality of this, right? Nope, we're going to do it very specifically. Verse 3, watch for the priests. Nobody moves till the priests take the ark and start moving. Once the priests start moving, look at verse 4, you're supposed to say 2,000 cubits, that's 1,000 yards, think about 1,000 yards, okay? 10 football fields, 1,000 yards, you stay back from the ark. So it's not like the priests are here and the people are on their shoulders. They're way back there. 
making sure they understand the message, I'm going first. The ark was a picture of the presence of God. So the priests, the representatives of God, they're going first with the ark. You guys, you, you, you almost need binoculars to see them. You're a thousand yards back, but do not get any closer until they're set. Verse 6, the ark that's carried by the priests has to go before you. Verse 8, the priests are supposed to step into the Jordan, and once they step into the Jordan, and I do what I'm going to do, they're supposed to stand very still. Not move around, not looking at the people coming. What's going on? Charlie, how you doing today? Did you have a pastrami on rye before we came? It's really, it's fun. And look at this. Look at what's going on, man. We're standing holding the ark right in the middle of the Jordan. No, he says, focus. Stand still. You're holding my presence. Stand still. This is a solemn, holy moment. Verse 12, one man from each tribe go first and represent the people. And verse 13, when you cross, I'm going to hold back the water. Now, the Lord doesn't say, just go. He says there's a prerequisite of consecration. And then there's a prerequisite of a very definitive and precise way that I am going to provide. And I'm giving you these details before you go because I want to show you how I'm going to provide. I thought this week, how often do we get impatient waiting for the way that God will provide without going through the steps of faith and obedience? You know, there's a logical progression in our faith. And often we're like, all right, Lord, come on now. And we pray this way. Lord, show me how this is going to happen. Lord, I know you're going to work. So show me how, show me how, show me how, show me how. I want to know. Show me the way. What, what's going to happen, Lord? How's this going to work? What, what, what are you going to do? And, and, and there's a lack of prayer. And there's a lack of seeking the counsel of godly people. And we get worried and anxious and frustrated and, and a little bit angry. And, and then we finally say, you're not working fast enough, Lord. And you're not showing me the way. So I'm just going to go a different way. We're called to live under the Spirit's control, which means we should never take a step without the Lord's confirmation. Now, let's be very clear. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be paralyzed. Doesn't mean we're supposed to refuse to step out in faith because I'm not moving one step till I get the Lord's confirmation. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean being inactive. Just sit back. Well, I've just got to wait for the Lord. Well, I'm opening door. Well, I just wait for the Lord. It means to follow the steps that he gives us. Step one, consecrate. Step two, seek. Step three, wait, but actively prepare yourself. Step four, get specific confirmation. Step five, advance. If you are facing decisions in your life right now, are you following those steps? Over the last six and a half years, as we waited for a building and we called on the Lord, I believe this is what we did. And then the Lord provided this building and we prayed. We didn't just jump in. All right, they're ready to sell. Let's do it. We had meeting after meeting where we prayed, Lord, show us. We did our due diligence. We kept looking at other buildings to make sure that if this is not right, you close the door. We've got a backup plan. And we kept saying, Lord, if this is not your will, close the door. If this is not your will, close the door. And then once God says the door is open, once we got the confirmation, we acted. 
following the exact same steps as we look how to most effectively do outreach. At the next prayer meeting on the 12th, we're going to spend a lot of time praying, Lord, how can we reach into this community most effectively? And, 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 and don't, you know, do any of us think that if we consecrate ourselves and seek him with our whole heart and say, Lord, we want your will and your leading, that God's going to say, I'm not answering that prayer. Are you kidding? I'm not going to act on that. If we come to him with humble hearts and we sanctify our hearts and we put ourselves before him and say, Lord, we just want to know what you want. Just just show us what your will is, Lord. And once you show it and confirm it, we will act on it with such joy and such passion. God's going to look at that and go, oh, that's it. That's what I'm looking for right there. I, I want that people, that church, that they're doing what I've called them to do. If you need specifics in your life, I want to tell you this morning, God will provide them. He will provide them through his word and he will provide them by his spirit. But there's a step to take first. You've got to consecrate. And the second step is you've got to now follow his clear leading. Last, the third spiritual principle is that that first step takes pure, confident faith. Now, I, we talk about faith all the time, and I don't want you to tune out. Oh, I need faith. Listen, faith is scary. Let's just be real honest. Faith is scary. But it's also joyful, and it's liberating. And true faith is only focused on the sufficiency of the Lord, even if that doesn't make any sense to us. How do I know that? Well, I know that because I start reading at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, thousand yards ahead, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks at the days of harvest. So, so, it's, so it's out of its banks because it's flood season. The waters, verse 16, which were flowing down from above, all the way from the Sea of Galilee, stood and rose up in one heap, a giant distance, a great distance, excuse me, away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, the dead sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on, what's the word? Dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on, tell me again, dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Now, a couple really cool details here. That's why I love this passage. I want to show how awesome the Lord is and how much he's worthy of our faith. Look back at verse 7 for a second. It says, you, I want you to cross on this day. Now, this day is not a coincidence. It's the 10th day of the month. That means it's 39 years and 361 days after they left Egypt. Now, he had told them they'd wander for 40 years because of their sin. So now they're going into the promised land four days before the 40 years is up. But that's not coincidental either. 
The fact that it was four days had two purposes. One is to show that God doesn't take pleasure in judgment. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. The second is because 40 years before, to the day, they had set apart a spotless lamb to be killed as a substitutionary sacrifice so God would pass over their houses in Egypt and spare their lives by grace and deliver them. What a testament to the way God works. They're entering a new land that God promised to Abraham 470 years before, and they're going in exactly the same way their grandparents had come out of Egypt, on dry ground where the water had been. And the location of their crossing wasn't a coincidence either. They were at Beth Abara. It means house of passage. Now you say, Bethabara, why do I care? Well, in Matthew 3, 9, Bethabara is where John the Baptist had challenged the spiritual corruption of the Pharisees and said, out of these stones, God can raise up the children of Abraham. Bethabara, in John 1, also was the exact location where John the Baptist baptized, and it was also the exact location where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Jesus, who is the Savior, whose name is Yeshua, Jesus in the Greek, and Joshua in the Hebrew. And both mean Jehovah is salvation. Now get this. So in Joshua 3, we have Joshua, whose name is Jehovah is salvation, delivering the people by God's grace and leading them into God's plan on dry ground at the place where 2,000 years later, Jesus, God is salvation, would deliver all the people by God's grace and lead them into God's plan. Now tell me that's not wonderful. So the priests take this first step into the Jordan. And remember, the Jordan's not, not normal at this point. It's not just nice and flowing. The banks of the Jordan in most places are fairly high, so the water kind of runs in the valley. This is, this is harvest time. This is flood time. So the water is overflowing, and it's kind of lapping on the edge of the banks and going in, and there's mud on the edge. So he says to the priests, as soon as you go, as soon as your toes touch that first mud right on the edge, as soon as the water of the Jordan touches you, it's going to be cut off. And it's going to recede and stand back in a pile at the city of Adam. Little irony there that the Lord is reminding them of Adam's sin. So, so the water is going to recede back up. Now, now, not 50 yards, not 100 yards. The city of Adam was 17 miles away. So the water, 17 miles of water, we've seen flood with the hurricane, right? 17 miles of water backs up and stands in a pile in that city. Walk out of the house. What is that? My word, what's going on here? Now, that's where skeptics go. See, you can't trust the Bible. There's no way that could happen. I I mean, come on. Water doesn't do that. Well, I fully believe that God did this, but when Hurricane Irma 
went through Florida a couple weeks ago, the Lord gave us a picture of how possible this is, even without his direct hand pulling the water back. I want to show you a couple pictures. This is Tampa Bay. A couple years ago, Julie and Jacob and I rode jet skis right through there. Jacob saw a shark. We had a great time. There was a big pirate boat, all kinds of boats, and we rode right through there on jet skis. I know exactly where that is. When Hurricane Irma came through the area, the force of the hurricane was so strong that it literally sucked the water out of the bay and it receded a couple miles back. Just incredible. And it not only proves that it could happen, but it reminds us of the power of the Lord, which inspires complete faith. Because instead of the mud that you see them walking on, God takes Israel through on what? Tell me. Dry ground. So this is what a hurricane does. Pulls it. You can't see the water. It's as far as the eye can see at the horizon. The water's still back there. This is usually six, seven, eight, ten feet of water right there at the seawall. There was no water. People are out there in the mud walking around. One guy was on a bike in the first picture. And then the water came back in. God says in Joshua 3, by my hand, by my hand now, not the force of a hurricane, which I control anyway, but by my hand, I'm going to grab the water and I'm going to push it back and I'm going to stack it up 17 miles to the north. And you, Israel, are going to walk through on dry ground. Now look at chapter 3, verse 10. Joshua says, by this, you will know that the living God is among you. Now, I don't know what more evidence they needed. Forty years to the day of deliverance and Passover, a repeat of the Red Sea miracle, walking through on dry ground, water stacked up at a town called Adam who doubted God, the ark of the presence leading the way, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and being led by a man named Jehovah is salvation. I mean, there's no way they're missing that, right? So the same God does this through the one who is the author of salvation, Jesus who is salvation, to deliver us from sin, become the second Adam, to be here in his full presence, to fulfill the law and his promise, and to save us to the uttermost. Now let me ask you, what do you need to trust him for this morning? What is the first step for you? See, all of a sudden, our problems and our crises, they may not see less small, but they don't have as much power, do they? Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. Maybe you feel like the Jordan River this morning, the water's just lapping out of the banks. You just feel flooded with, with problems and weariness and emotions and no answers, and you're just, you're just spent physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and you feel like the water's never going to recede. I'm never going to see a path, Lord. I just don't know what to do. Let me tell you something this morning. The Lord doesn't want to just pull the waters back. He wants to give you dry ground to walk on. 
He doesn't want to just say, well, I'll, I'll drop it down a little bit so you can kind of wade through at your knees and, and kind, of, kind of make a way. He says, I want to provide a place of promise and blessing and help and rest. And I'm going to push those waters back if you will consecrate yourself and trust in my leading. And he's willing to do that because he's kind and he's gracious and he's loving and he's long-suffering, and his grace and his mercy is unending. Listen, God's not a pushover. He still expects and deserves our unwavering trust, our complete surrender, our daily obedience. And when we do that, listen now, this is the end. When we do that, his provision is spectacular. Look at it one more time. Consecrate yourselves, verse 5, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Believe that, right? That God wants to do wonders. Not, not just, well, Lord's good, amen, praise the Lord, and I know he'll help. Nope, it's more than that. Ready to do wonders. Ready to do things that we can't explain. Ready to do things that are beyond our comprehension. Listen, if we don't believe that this morning, if if that's not our full confidence of faith, then we're kind of just playing at it. If we don't believe that God wants to fill this church, not once on Sunday, not twice on Sunday, but three times on Sunday, if we don't believe that God wants us to get out in the neighborhood and reach people for Christ, if we don't believe that God wants to see revival in the city, and I'm not talking just a little bit of change, I'm talking transformation. If we don't believe that God wants to fill this room for prayer meeting every single week, if we don't believe that, then we're just monkeying around. If you don't believe that God wants to transform your marriage that's struggling, if God wants to change the hearts of your kids who are away from you, if God wants to make provision for you, for your health, your finances, your job, if if we don't believe that, if we don't believe that when we consecrate ourselves and trust in him, that he will do wonders, then we are wasting our time. That our faith is just minuscule and not a good like a mustard seed. It's just kind of nothing there. So we've got to take the steps, we're done, of faith and obedience. And it's not temporary. It's not situational. It's permanent. Israel didn't get halfway through walking in mud. Well, this is kind of cool. I don't know. Maybe we ought to go back. My feet are kind of messy. I don't know. It's been a good journey. I don't know. Kids, what do you think? You want to go over there? Uh, people are kind of big, nation. I don't know. It's kind of. I don't know if we can do this. I don't know. It's pretty cool, pretty cool miracle. But I don't know. Let's. Should we go back? What do you think, Charlie? Should we go? I don't know. Let's go back. Well, boy, I don't know. It's pretty good. But we know that. What? What does the Bible say? Don't waver. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Go forward or go back. Don't stand in the middle. God has given us dry ground. And he said, cross over. 
and take new ground. Next week we'll see that he cuts off the access to go back. I'm glad. Aren't you? Let's ask him to help us.